Welcome, everybody, back to the Pittsburgh Oddcast on kdkradio.com and radio.com. My name is Andrew Lindbergh. I'm the producer of the program. And with me, as always, is Mr. Odd himself, Mr. John Chalkowski. Hello, everybody. Thanks for tuning in today, where we have a pretty fascinating story for you. And that's uh, the story of Pittsburgh's worst disaster, where everyone did forget. So it's uh, the date of April 10th, 1845. Does that mean anything to you? No. So, um, but I'm sure 9-11 does, you know, or certain other dates, you know, in time. I wasn't alive, but Pearl Harbor Day, you know. Correct. We know that. Correct. We know that day, right? Well, where there's a day in Pittsburgh that should not be forgotten, and that is April 10th, 1845. And where about a third of the entire city of Pittsburgh burned down to the ground. I've never heard about that. And uh, this is a an event that is not really readily told in Pittsburgh history books. I mean, well, it's told in Pittsburgh history books, but not in your generalized history book, and it should be. No, I've heard about the Great Chicago Fire, right? Um, the Great San Francisco Earthquake and uh-huh. everything that happened after that. Yep. Um, but you didn't hear about this one, did you? No. <laughs> so it's uh, and that's the reason why we have to talk about it. And uh, there's been many things written about the 1845 fire, and uh, the best thing I've found. Uh, so far, it was a first-hand account of what went on that day and the aftermath of it. So I am going to read an actual first-hand account. Okay, this was written by J. Heron Foster, and this was published just a few months after in 1845. And it's got to talk about a little bit about how it happened, why it happened, and the recovery effort. And uh, I hope join me along in this story because it's pretty fascinating. So it begins, and I'm quoting directly here. It is impossible for anyone, although a spectator of the dreadful scene of destruction, which is presented to the eyes of a citizen on a memorable 10th of April, to give more than a faint idea of the terrible, the overwhelming calamity, which then befell our city, destroying in a few hours the labors of decades and blasting suddenly the cherished hopes of hundreds, if we may even say thousands, of our citizens, who by the morning were contented in the possession of the comfortable homes and busy workshops of their, their, their town. The blow was so sudden and unexpected as to unnerve the most self-professed, and even few witnessed more than the destruction of their own property, and that in the immediate neighborhood, whilst engaged in vain efforts to save it. Our work is therefore necessarily more of a statistical than descriptive nature, designing to preserve the for future reference and various incidents of the conflagration, which must else have passed with a memory of a rapidly as the traces of our disaster are now disappearing before the magic wand of industry and enterprise. So now that's the opening statement of this uh, little book here. So it's important what he talks about here. He says that we must talk about it. Otherwise people will forget it because there's so much being rebuilt, so much coming that um, especially with industry, that, you know, pretty soon no one's even going to know that this happened. This was a few months after, and so reconstruction was already taking place. That's right. And it was a uh, becoming a very uh, worrisome that people might forget this tragedy. And uh, it continues with, none witnessed the conflagration. So conflagration literally means a great fire. I'd look that up. <laughs> but conflagration. But know the difficulty of equating or describing it. 
as we must trust some charity may be extended to us if we should fail in the effort to picture to the imagination of our listeners the most destructive conflagration that has ever been described. Uh, at noon, Thursday, the 10th of April, 1845, a fire originated in the backyard of some frame buildings owned by Colonel Deal at the southeast corner of what today is Boulevard of the Allies and, Sec- and, and Smithfield Street. So picture that in your head. Right, Smithfield and Boulevard of the Allies, that intersection. A woman had carelessly kindled an open fire to heat water to do her wash. The wind being so high, the fire communicated to the ice house, which was located next door on, on, on Ferry Street at the time, which was quickly engulfed in flames. The frame building on 2nd Street furnished abundance of fuel for the destroying element. Crossing 2nd Street... A fine cotton factory owned by oh, Colonel James Woods, upon the, which the workmen were currently busily making repairs uh, with all of its machinery, was soon up in flames. And notwithstanding the uncasing efforts of the firemen to prevent it, the brick dwelling adjoining it met the same fate. The safety of one-third of the city depended on the success of those who were battling the flames. And upon the roof of the Third Presbyterian Church, which was then at the corner of Smithfield and um, in Stanwick Street, sorry, Stanwick and Third Street, the high walls of which were presented a barrier to the progress of the flame in that direction. The roof was surrounded by a massive wooden cornice, and which served to lessen the danger to the persons who were engaged in extinguishing the flakes of fire which were continually falling upon it. The intense heat soon caused the woodwork in the rear of the building to smoke and then burst into flames. When the axe was used with bricksness, and a few moments that portion of the cornice was thrown into the fiery gulf was raged beneath. This alone saved that church building and the edifice, a portion of the city of east of Sandwich Street, which also had been smoking ruin. Meanwhile, the flames spread onward, spreading on both sides against the most superhuman efforts of our citizens to save the progress. The wind was blowing too strong from the southwest. The old stone bank which occupied the dwelling of Mr. Samuel R. Johnson, Esquire, and that of Dr. Dimmitt on the corner of Chancery Lane were the next two victims, from which the fire communicated to the row of brick buildings extended from 2nd to 3rd Streets along Market Street, which was now owned by the first mayor of Pittsburgh, Arnold Armour Denny, and Colonel William Crowen. The extensive printing and binding establishments of Mr. Johnson's and Stockton's on 3rd Street was much in danger, and this was only saved from destruction by the success of those who were defended the 3rd Presbyterian Church adjoining it. The daily American office was saved by the greatest exertion of the part of the workmen. The flames did not cross 3rd Street until they had passed the new post office building, which was above Market Street, when the printing office of Mr. John Butler prayed uh, a prayed to their violence. Crossing towards 4th, the dwellings of Dr. Simpson and Mr. Anthony Beelan were almost miraculously sparred. The handsome building known now as Philo Hall and occupied as the mayor's office watch house, board of trade reading room, and the hall of philological institute were all consumed by fire in Forest Street. The vast crowd which was now thronging into the streets prevented the removal of property by its density and anxiously awaited the approach of the fire to the beautiful banking house of the Bank of Pittsburgh, the oldest moneyed institute within the city. Trusting in its reputation as a fireproof building, (laughs) so think about that, to stop the fire from destroying it further. The cashier at the bank, on the approach of danger, secured most of the books and valuables in the bank together with some property bought for them for safety 
into the vaults and locked the doors and left the building. As the fire approached, the sheet iron cased window shutters afforded a little bit of protection, but the intense heat soon melted the, the zinc roof and the fire communicated to the interior of the building, which extended from 3rd to 4th Street and destroyed every vestige of the woodwork contained within the vault, and the contents, though, were preserved. Passing the bank, the Daily Chronicle office, which is another newspaper, uh, fell before it, together with the neat and convenient engine house of the Vigilant Fire Company, also went up in flames. Passing 4th Street above the uh, Branch Bank of the United States, the fire spread towards Diamond Alley now, that's today's Fifth Avenue, extended on Wood Street to the bookstore and bindery of Mr. Luke Loomis. Opposite, it extended fully to Diamond Alley and up the alley to a large brick residence of William Shenley. And destroying the extensive Eagle livery stables in the bazaar of Mrs. Rohde and Robert Patterson. So it's moving up to the city. So if you think about this, it starts at Smithfield and Boulevard of the Allies. starts moving through the city, up to 3rd Street now, up to 4th Street, Diamond Alley, was today's Fifth Avenue. It keeps moving and moving. It's moving into the middle of downtown Pittsburgh. Now, granted, most of the time at this at this time period, most houses were wood wooden frame houses. You know, so it was a a bad situation. <laughs> and uh, and we continue here, right? So on the other side of the scene was devastation. The flames soon extended towards the Monongahela, cr- crossing Front Street above tr- Chancery Lane and destroying one warehouse, an iron roof preser- preserving the adjoining one for the same fate. And on the corner of 1st and Market Street, the large warehouses of Mr. Holmes was that the first wholesale grocery in Pittsburgh was destroyed. But little of their immense stock was saved, and large quantities of sugar, molasses, coffee, and groceries of every description were consumed within the flames. From Holmes' fire, the, it crossed the street to Market and 5th and spread immediately towards the river. At this time, it extended but about three squares, uh, but when the fire had extended to Wood Street, it embraced a wide width of five squares in the buildings of all three or four-story brick warehouses with the exception of the Merchant's Hotel, which had just been finished by Dr. Uh, Mr. Benjamin Weaver, all turning at the same, all lighting on fire at the same time, the loftiest buildings melting before the ocean of flame, which rolled and leaped onward before the gale as if derision of the suffering multitude whose household gods had been thus rudely torn away. The fire extended along the rows of wholesale commission and forwarding iron grocery warehouses on Water Street with fearful rapidity. Property of every description, boxes, bales, bags, were hastily removed from all burning buildings to the wharf, and in the intense heat, the darting flame and the falling sparks fired the mass of destruction extended to the very water's edge the steamboats that were in port at the time dropping down the river as far mouth as, as far down to sawmill run on the opposite side of the monongahela river so this fire is spreading everywhere okay it's it's lighting things on the shore on fire it's lighting boats on fire which are lighting other boats on fire um it gets worse right across the smithfield street bridge at that time period was probably one of the most magnificent hotels in pittsburgh's past where station square is now on the other side on the pittsburgh city side Gotcha. And uh, this was called the Monongahela House. Monongahela House at this time was was it was there, and they did later rebuild. And this is the same hotel where Abraham Lincoln stayed uh, when he visited here in Pittsburgh, and among many other notables, and even kings stayed there, and princesses and other presidents. So it, it was a pretty 
fantastic hotel at the time. If you had to go back somewhere, that's where you'd want to go visit because it's a uh, it's something out of this world just from the depictions of it. Well, in 1845, um, this happened to it. The splendid Monongahela House, which was er- erected by Mr. Lyon and Shorb, but just a few years ago, had furnished so completely, uh, took fire in the Coppola and other places at the same time, and within minutes was destroyed. But little being saved from it, many of the boarders losing all, losing all of their clothing. So rapid was the destruction of this property that from the dryness of the building, the intense heat caused by the immense size of the fire and the high winds preventing at the time, it increased the fire. On 3rd Street, the Dravo House, the Merchant's Hotel, the Baptist Church, the corner of Grant and Western, uh, of Grant Street, and finally, the University of Pittsburgh burns down to the ground. Wow. So now, at that time, it was called the Western University of Pennsylvania. It's not in Oakland at the time. No. Uh, it used to be located on 3rd Street downtown, uh, between 3rd and a, an alleyway, uh, which they called University Alley, believe it or not. But um, it was right towards the Mono- the bank of the Allegheny River, that side of 3rd Street. And uh, big, fancy-looking building. I mean, there's lithographs that exist of it, and that's where the first Pittsburgh Academy was. Uh, went up in flames, <laughs> you know. Uh, so that's a, uh, it's a pretty big thing. Uh, the later, uh, the Western University they're talking about here, uh, was a stone building of considerable size and well adapted to the purposes of its construction. And in it was destroyed the library of the Tigman Lib- Literary Institute, an association composed primarily of alumni and students of the institution. So all their books went up in flames as well. The Associated Reformed Church, a large brick edifice in the corner of 4th Street and Cherry Alley, was also destroyed. On the corner of 4th and Ross, the Scotch Hill House, kept by Mr. Woolenhahn, a large three-story frame house, was the only building in the square which remained standing. And it was on fire several times, but instantly extinguished by the owners, and the flames were eventually staved in that direction by blowing up with gunpowder the adjoining brick buildings. So think about that. They were so desperate. That uh, this bar, uh, which was called the uh, the Scotch Hill House, was so desperate that their place wouldn't catch on fire that they decided to blow up the houses next to them <laughs> to wow. prevent, you because know, then the fire wouldn't catch that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, desperate. The flames rolled on. Uh, their path, the dwellings of the rich and the poor and every common man, all in common ruin. Crossing the canal now, the fire continued to rage along the banks of Monongahela River. And to the end what is known as Kensington, uh, more commonly called Pipe Town, uh, destroying with the Dow's ironworks and doing some injury to the gasworks as well. Now, you may wonder, how did the fire cross over from downtown over, over the Monongahela River? And that's because the Smithfield Street Bridge at that time was a wooden covered bridge, which caught on fire and burned down to the ground. Down to the river. You got a point. <laughs> so the, uh, but it did, um, the, 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 the trussles or whatever the, you call that, you know, the things that are holding it up, you know, the actual stone edifices or whatever down at the bottom are the same original ones that were there since the very beginning. There's been three different Smithville bridges put on top of them, including the most recent one, which was over a hundred you know, years old, but the, uh, uh built that, by, that built by James Rome, Roebling. That's right. The same yeah. man that built the Brooklyn Bridge. That's right. Yeah. The one before that was built was, was pretty fantastic too. The one that they tore down to put that one. 
of course, the one they built after this great fire. But it's a um, it's crazy to think that a whole bridge you know burned down to the ground. So and, how fast uh, is it moving at this point? Do we- fast. Have it extended one mile from the place of beginning, destroying more than 20, 20 square blocks, covering a space of over 50 acres within the city. And about six of it, the fire stopped and wanted fuel, as this of, as because there was no more houses to burn by seven o'clock. So this is all a matter of six, seven, seven hours. Uh, seven o'clock, the work of destruction has been completed, and the fairest portion of our city was now in ruins. A ward, which was but a few months before had polled about 587 voters, with now shelters of 10 to 15 of them. Uh, well, a large portion of about another was also destroyed. Thousands of people were seeking shelter who had removed their property only to be burned down to the streets or pilfered by gangs and miscreants who dishonesty no feelings of humanity could restrain when such an opportunity for plunder occurred. The remainder of the city of and Allegheny was run over by those who were houseless, and many took refuge in the county. So they're all going to the north side. Yeah, the north side and just the woods. Uh, during this whole progress of the fire, from his first discovery on Ferry Street, the greatest scarcity of water prevailed. This rendered the efforts of our firemen utterly unavailable to subdue the flames. They succeeded only in saving a few buildings on the margin of a fire and in confining it to just as small a space as possible. Such was the fire of the 10th. So that's a first-hand account of what happened there. So now, that, after it was all said and done, okay, so this is, you know, coming, there, this book actually goes on and talks more statistics about who lost their houses, what businesses they owned, okay, what was the total damage, and how do they recover from this? You know, that's the next questions you got. So the answer um from most people that they would, well, they actually do give a number in here, and it's somewhere between eight to twelve million dollars of damage in eighteen forty-five money. So uh, to equate that today, it's over two hundred and fifty million dollars in uh, in damages that were done to the city of Pittsburgh, left over twelve thousand individuals homeless, uh, destroyed over twelve hundred businesses, and left the city completely in ruins. The fact that they turned that part of town and they renamed it like you know there's the strip district uh, you know, all these different little districts and you know whatever they called that the burnt district and it remained that way for a while but people being who they are and it's, it's, it's amazing to think about you know what happens when you hear of a city is in need of help or needs relief or whatever you know how many people really across the world reach out and that's exactly what happened here in Pittsburgh People uh, from all over the world, including v- famous old-time bankers, right? You know, this is all pre-Carnegie days. Uh, so this was all, um, uh, they were donating money out of their own pockets. Cities, uh, Philadelphia gave us $12,000 or something for a relief. Uh, San Francisco gave us money. You know, like all these different communities were stepping up now. New Zealand gave us money. Australia, England, France, all these different countries contributed to the relief fund, uh, which slowly not only rebuilt the city, but made it even better. And uh, in, in that area today, you know, it's called the Rebuilt District. Uh, but so much has happened in that general area of Pittsburgh, uh, which is a direct result of this fire of 1845 and the destruction, almost as if it was an event that was fate, that without this event, we wouldn't have progressed 
to the iron and steel manufacturing town that we eventually became. So there's, there's a couple of ways to think about that. <laughs> and uh, that goes for all these stories. You know, when you, you start talking about the historic events or stories, you, you know, that old saying, uh, time travel, um, whether it's possible or not, if it is possible, and you're able to go back in time, can you alter history? Can you change it? Should you change it? Should you go back to 1845 and prevent this fire from that lady from ever lighting that fire to do her laundry? Should you do it? And the answer is no. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's sad. You know, it's a, it's a sad answer. But do we know how many people lost their lives? Believe it or not, only two. 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 All that destruction, uh, leaving over, you know, over 12,000 people homeless, only two. Uh, succumb to the flames. That's a miracle. Mainly, it was like it was two older people who just couldn't get out in time. Mm. And um, but I mean, this city destroyed all your groceries. This is a time before any kind of electricity. You know, before any most people lived in wooden houses. You know, so it was a uh, you know wooden houses is not a good news when there's any kind of fire that breaks out, let alone the worst fire and and the worst disaster in your city's history. And that goes to this day. I mean, you could say that the the 1936 flood was pretty bad. But not as bad as this. Didn't cause this much destruction. People could easily just dry out your your place. You know, how are you going to rebuild a, a third of the city from the ground up? I mean, there's depictions of this. Where people have painted it. Uh, people, Other people have firsthand, you know, stories about it. And just looking at a map of what it looked like is was shocking. I mean, the only thing left standing the next day were just chimneys and random stone pits. And, uh, I mean, it was bad. Everyone took what they did have and just threw it out in the Mon Wharf and hope that nobody's going to steal it. Cause obviously it talks about here that, you know, kids were out there stealing stuff yeah. and looting everything. You know? Another thing, it's amazing that, you know, they are us, they are human beings, but the thing that's amazing to me is how they were able to rebuild with what little they had. Um, yeah. You know, they couldn't get in there. They didn't have a car. Right. They didn't have a supermarket. Mm-hmm. So they, even though they rebuilt and even though we would rebuild if something like that happened, we could go to a suburb store, a mm-hmm. giant eagle that wasn't affected. Yeah, yeah. Well, you heard from that story that the, the giant eagles of the day also burnt down to the ground. So, you know, you did have markets, but, but, but you know, that stuff's gone. And, you know, how are you going to support 12,000 people, you know, in a city that's not much larger than that? I mean, it's a third of your entire city. It's almost impossible. So mm-hmm. it's a... Uh, it is interesting to think of it in that aspect of how people react to it and how people recover from it and how what we share with them. And how, that, um, well, go ahead. How long did it take for them? The recovery? Uh, it was pretty instantaneous. And, and you know, and, and within the weeks coming up, you know, people started having supplies sent here and recovery was set up. Um, could have been worse, in other words, um, you know, where – there could have been nothing, you know, and if, if this happened 50 years earlier, okay, and uh, Pittsburgh was a, you know, frontier town. You have to remember that. It was a, a, a fort, right, Fort Pitt. By the 1790s, the Fort Pitt was gone. You know, there was no need for it. Uh, you know, the, the only reason why we kept it that long, it was because we were having Native Americans attacking the fort and, and the area around here. This is that way after the Revolutionary War even. So you had... Um, no real kind of pending threat. So people started moving out and started venturing out and people started traveling through here because then it was a safe territory. Start going down the rivers and doing trade and taking a ship uh, or a boat from here, Pittsburgh to new Orleans or, uh, you know, up towards Erie, 
you know, it was the the gateway to the West. So many people were traveling through here on a daily basis that some of those people just stayed. So it's safe to say that the rivers came through for us after that great fire because we were able to get supplies here faster? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not only the rivers come through for us then, but uh, that's that's really the story of Pittsburgh is the three rivers. Because of those rivers is why we're here. Because of those three rivers is why all that industry came here to Pittsburgh. Because of those three rivers is why Native Americans settled here back 10,000 years ago. Yeah, because of those three rivers, we have many things to thank. And uh, it, it all boils down to um, uh, showing the appreciation now that, you know, it's the year 2019. You know, now we can look back. So that's the kind of stuff that you're going to hear every single week here on the Pittsburgh Oddcast. Be sure to follow Odd, Mysterious, and Fascinating History of Pittsburgh page on Facebook. Also follow KDK Radio on Facebook or on Twitter and Instagram and all that good stuff, too. Um, yeah, tune in, guys. You know, share it with all your friends. Share it with your family. Embrace your history. Uh, learn from it. And not do it again. That's the ultimate goal is to not make you repeat this history. Learn from those past mistakes. They're there. All you got to do is learn about it. And appreciate where you're from. Yeah. A little bit more. Yeah. You know, so without further ado, that's it for Pit.